Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 97. Today's guest is Bill Whiteside. Bill Whiteside is the author of the book, Everyone Knows a Salesman Can't Write a Book. After a 40-year career in professional selling and marketing other people's products, Bill had the courage to sit down write and self-publish his first book. Bill and I discuss one of the giants from history, Winston Churchill. We take a deep dive into a fascinating yet little known battle in World War II. We talk about the creative process. Just why is it so hard to sit down and write or produce something creatively and ship it out into the world? And we also talk about the art of selling. Bill and I sat down a few months back and I forgot how good this conversation was going back and editing up the episode over the past few days. It's a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews, including episode number 100 with the one and only Seth Godin who's making his second appearance on the podcast to speak about his upcoming book. Until then, enjoy my conversation with Bill Whiteside. And remember, life is built, not born. Bill Whiteside, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Joe. It's such a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Bill, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Bill Whiteside. I am currently an author. I self-published one book late last year. And my main focus this year is a book about Winston Churchill and a little known incident from World War II. But before doing this, I have a long career in sales. I spent the previous 30 years with my own business selling software. So it was Quite a jump, quite a leap of faith to leave a real job selling software and handle the transition to writing full-time. I would like to get into, A, your new career as an author. Maybe we could discuss the writing process a little bit, the creative process. Definitely want to touch in the art of selling, what it's like to sell professionally. I just think there's so many life lessons that you can learn from sales to translate into life. Also, too, we could touch base on one of my heroes from history, which reading your book, uh, everybody knows a salesman can't write a book, love the title, Winston Churchill. Thank you. If we could touch base on Churchill and a little known battle, which I never heard reading a couple books on Churchill and like at least a dozen books of World War II under my belt, either through Audible or reading, I've never heard of that battle between the English and French forces. If we could touch base on that, that would be awesome. But before we do that, I want to start back all sure. the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Laverock, which is a little town in the Philadelphia suburbs. Spent most of my life into my mid-30s until we moved to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is where we live now. Fast the 18-year-old version of you, what you wanted to be when you grow up. What would the 18-year-old version of you say? I was so aimless and clueless at that age. I had a vague notion that I would like to be a writer at some point in my life, but I, and I started off in college as an English major for two years, but 
never pursued writing, never did anything really constructive, except for doing a fair amount of writing during my sales career. And it really took me 50 years after that to, to really make the full-time leap into writing. So I started off out of college. I worked in, uh, I was a marketer of fish sticks for 10 years, worked for Mrs. Paul's, then moved to Lancaster, worked for a dairy for four years as director of marketing, then made the jump into sales to sell software for 30 years. So from fish sticks to ice cream to software, not the ideal career path for writing about history, but, but somehow it, it worked out. A couple of things there. One, you mentioned selling mm -hmm. and you mentioned writing the creative process. First off, let's go into sales first. So your career, you started off, you know, everyone has that crazy thing they sold first or not crazy, but like the unique thing, your fish sticks. I was radio airtime, like literally going around the car dealerships. Oh, really? Yeah. I had guys, yeah. blow, I literally would go into like shady restaurant owners, like proprietors trying to get someone on the air to, to advertise on the radio station. And like, I'd show him a proposal and he would take a puff of their cigar and he, they literally would blow the smoke right in my face and go, ah, too expensive. No, thank you. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just a crazy uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great training. It's a horrible place to sell, but an amazing place to learn how to sell the art of selling. So fish sticks, how does someone who wants to be a writer go in to start selling fish sticks? How's that happen? was the only job I could get. In fact, my father, he didn't admit this at the time and he didn't volunteer it, but I was so aimless coming out of college. My dad knew Ed Pizak, who was the owner of Mrs. Paul's at the time, and he got me that job. And I wasn't, had no plans to get into marketing, but I was very fortunate because marketing provides a lot of room for creativity. And at the time, Mrs. Paul's was family owned and uh, everybody got involved in a little bit of everything. We owned a minor league hockey team at the time. So we got to work on the hockey team. We got to participate in uh, advertising and package development. So I really lucked out ending up in that position and ending up with the opportunities that that job presented. And also, I was in marketing. I was horrified at the idea of ever being in sales. I was, was much quieter personality at the time and just never envisioned myself getting into sales. So that, that's another surprise at where I am today. So if you look at outside sales, of having a product or service and going into the world and trying to hunt something down, kill it, or, or at least provide perspective to outside people that potentially could utilize a service and make their life better. If someone says, what's sales all about? What makes it so hard? What makes it so appealing? What would you say? Well, in, in terms of appeal, you live and die on your own. You're responsible for your own success. I, When I was selling software, I was 100% on commission, so I was directly responsible for my own income as well. And um, it's, it's tough, as you know, but when it works, it's, it's a great feeling of accomplishment, and it never happens overnight. But I think a big part of it is learning – I'm sure you, you, you did this when you were selling the radio ads. You, you told the people not, you know, this is how wonderful our station is or these are how wonderful our DJs are, but this is what's in it for you. And it took me a while to learn that it's not just selling my product. It's learning what the needs are of the people that I'm selling to, which 
you get to know them first as people, you get to know what their biases, what their interests are. And then learning to translate the benefits of your product to the needs of your customers. Once I finally figured that out, things went much better for me than they ever did before. Yeah. I think what sales tells you, I think you hit it right on the head. One one of my early sales managers just crossed off the word sales or selling. And every time the word selling came up, he just wrote helping. And <laughs> it's it, it, the art of helping. And it's not the art of sales. It's the art of help. And it's just how you can help that person or that group. They have a thousand things going on in their life, but that when they're in that one lane of where your product or service works, to show them how using your service, buying your product makes their life better by saving time, saving money, saving energy, a better outcome, higher quality, better image, whatever it is that your, your product does. If you can transfer that emotion to them, it's like the transference of emotion. If you could transfer that like, wow, when I use this product and service, I get a better outcome. You're just going to help a lot of people. And make a lot of people's lives better. And that old Zig Ziglar says, if you help someone, like if you make someone's life better, they're going to make your life better. And they're not going to know that. They're not going to figure that out on their own. You doing that for them truly are helping them. And I had a bit of an advantage too with the software. I had been a customer of the software for four years before I started selling it. And I made every mistake you could possibly make with the software, which was a great way of learning. My enthusiasm for the software to a lot of people was contagious because I, I knew how good it could be and I knew how it could benefit people and more than pay for itself. So that certainly was something that something good that I had going for me. Another one of my mentors in sales back, I went from radio airtime to medical sales and okay. transfer of enthusiasm. So if you could transfer the energy and enthusiasm that you have for what you sell and transfer it to someone else, like if you're an author and you write a book and just say you're a fan of Churchill and you write a book on Churchill, if you could transfer the enthusiasm, like if you read this book, you're going to learn things about Churchill. The other 16 books you read about Churchill didn't talk about or gives you a different angle, different perspective. That tribe, like Seth Godin would speak about, like that tribe that loves Churchill books, like they're going to eat that up and it's going to be a remarkable success in that little path, that little tribe of yours, right? It's not for everyone. It's just for that select few. And uh, if you can transfer that enthusiasm for that select few of people that use your product, my goodness, you're going to make a career there. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it's fair to say that every story you could, that you could possibly tell about Winston Churchill has already been written. I saw a presentation by Andrew Roberts, who he wrote a landmark biography of Churchill. How good of an author said is something like he's such a great author. Oh, he's, he's humbling, almost intimidating. And um, I met him in a crowd one time. It's such a nice gentleman as well. He is the gold standard. And he said there's something like a thousand Churchill biographies on hardcover biographies on Amazon today. So to differentiate. I would not be the right person to write a, a life of Churchill or a life of anybody. But being able to zero in on this one incident, roughly two weeks out of his entire career, and do it at a very granular level of detail and learn about personalities and the disagreements and the honor that people felt was violated allows me to tell the story 
in a different way that um, I, I certainly hope will be compelling to a lot of people who already know quite a bit about Winston Churchill. So reading your book, everyone knows a salesman can't write a book. One of the things, I learned something on the first page, you mentioned, and this is maybe five, maybe four or five biographies of Churchill over the last decade I've, I've listened to or read. And you mentioned a few weeks into his prime ministership, the right before World War II really got going, the British and the French got in a Royal Naval battle. And basically the Royal Navy, the British Navy killed more French than the Germans killed through the entire war. Fact blew me away. You can take it from there. And, and it did for me too. And like you, I started off, I read multiple Churchill biographies and most of them mention that. It might be a paragraph, it might be a couple of pages, but then there's so much more to Churchill, they move on. And I became very curious. And this is while I was selling full time. And my territory was the Northeast US from Virginia up into New England. So I spent a lot of time on planes and trains and in my car. I had a lot of idle time, um, especially when I was, certainly not while I was driving, but in planes and trains, hotel rooms. I started digging into story, started researching it online. I went to a, a lot of used bookstores looking for additional information about this. And I learned more about the incident and also more about the people involved. And I started to pay a little bit more attention to that. Then I started going to archives. My first visit to what they call primary research, which is when you're not reading a book, you're looking and holding the actual papers, was the FDR library, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York. And the absolute highlight of this project were the three days I spent in the United Kingdom in Cambridge in the Churchill archives. And that whole time, in my mind, I, in my mind and in reality, I was still a software salesman, but I was astonished at how welcoming the people were, the archivists, the people who really knew the information and could guide me to, to the information that was most pertinent to my story. They want these stories told and shared. So they went out of their way to make this easy for me. So it took me a while to be comfortable pursuing it in that detail. But after a while, it became a lot easier to do. You're in sales. Like sales is a grind. I mean, there's early mornings, there's late yeah. nights, there's drives across the state, there's drives across two states to meet with an angry customer or the customer cancels when you're four hours into your drive. We've all been there. How does a software salesman find their way to Cambridge in the Churchill archives? At what point did you say, you know what? I'm not just a salesperson. I'm going to do research and write a book. How did that come about? One thing that helps a lot, based you know the grind and the time, it helps a lot to be married to Barbara Whiteside, who uh, is very patient. She raised our two kids. She put up with my travel while I was selling full time, and put up with my nose down, lack of attention to anything else while I was working on the book. And we had actually we planned a ten day trip to London. We we're going to see more of the UK, but London was our base and. Barbara had been an, ex an executive secretary. She plans everything in detail. Um, I basically just asked, okay, is this a warm weather or cold weather trip? How many, am I going to have to wear a jacket at all? And how many days of clothing should I bring? The one thing I did differently for this trip was I asked for 
one day set aside to visit Chartwell, which is Churchill's country estate. And the building on the cover of my book, which I know you can't see right now, is a picture of Chartwell that Barbara actually took. And then I asked for the three days at the Churchill archives. And then once we laid out the trip, I sent them an email um, explaining that I was interested in visiting and anybody can visit. They suggest that you make preparations in advance, but all you have to do is fill out an application on site or do it online in advance, show a photo ID, and essentially you're in. Now, one interesting thing about that trip was there was a, uh, Admiral James Somerville was a key player in this incident, and his papers are at the Churchill Archives. So the Archives House, not just Churchill's papers, but the papers of about 400 other people. And I, I knew I wanted to see Somerville's papers, and I sent an email letting the archivists know that in advance. And they told me that, sure, you can have access to that except for one folder, which is restricted. And that folder contains his letters to his wife and other family members and his diary. And the only way you can see that is if you uh, send a letter and get approval from his grandson. Wasn't quite sure how to approach that. So they said, send us a letter. We'll, we'll edit it if we have to. I sent a letter to the archivist. She wrote back the next day saying that my letter was, quote unquote, perfectly adequate, which is a phrase that I love. And fortunately, Mr. Somerville, within about a week, granted me that permission. So I felt like I was able to do a really deep dive into the privileged archives. Long-winded answer to your question, it's knowing what you want to do and getting over any sense of imposter syndrome and going after it. And if they say no, fine, we'll recalibrate and see what else we have to do. But um, there were, I can't think of a single door that was closed to me. People were just so willing and helpful. And to be fair to you, I don't think the doors were open for you. I think you opened them yourself. I don't think people would say, hey, here's a door, walk through here. I mean, you had a knock <laughs> on those doors. Does that make sense? I, I defined them and I knocked hard on some of them. Yes. That's yeah. I mean, true. yeah. I think anybody that, could do that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I guess this is a good lead into our next question. The creative process. Why is that, especially writing, why do people find that? Why is that so mystical, so hard? some great thought leaders that bring a lot of thought to the process, like Seth Godin, Ryan Holiday, two people I know both of us have these influences. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the creative process? Why is writing so hard? And or at least in like that imposter syndrome, like you put something on paper, like I have a couple hundred articles on LinkedIn or on my website over the last 10 years. And like, I'm like, I have no business writing about that. And I'll hit publish. And I'm like, oh, I almost immediately want to take it down. At least the first dozen I wrote. I'm like, I can't believe I just hit publish <laughs> on that. Like, where does that come from? Like, why do we think we have such an imposter syndrome when it comes to sharing creative work? I still do that. And let me just backtrack just a second to your our previous discussion about getting into archives and banging down doors. I would have loved to have had a book like mine when I started this process because I didn't know what was possible. I didn't know how to go about it. My book certainly is not a step-by-step -step instructional manual, but it's meant to inspire people and let them know what can be done. Anytime I see an article or a podcast by an author about their process, how they organize the research and things like that. But in terms of writing, it's, as you know, it's, it's hard work. And you 
obviously have to believe in your story. You have to believe in yourself before you press send. And I'm sure you've run into this too, that there, there's a lot of different ways to tell a story in terms of you know, organizing the facts and finding the best words. I've grown to think of it more as storytelling as opposed to writing. So it's storytelling on paper, sharing your ideas and trying to put them in a meaningful way, not just here's a list of bullet points of the facts that I found. Yeah, I that's, found a, yeah that storytelling yeah. is big. You know, when you're just writing, like if you just say writing, but that when you say I'm telling a story, that, that to me, that gives you a different mindset when you're putting words on paper. Would this hold someone's interest? Is this something that, that can make someone's life better or spark something in their imagination or, or make them see things in a different light, right? I mean, something like that you're getting at. Yes, and part of it is knowing what to leave out. Yeah. And I found all kinds of obscure things during my research. I learned that the Swedish army only has generals during world wars. They don't have generals any other. And, you know, I, I lived for finding obscure facts like that. And that was in my book for maybe 10 seconds. And I wrote that that doesn't contribute any. It's fascinating to me, but it doesn't do anything for the story. So taking out things that are obscure like that and don't add anything to moving the story along, that was a bit of a learning for me. Doesn't Hemingway say something like "kill your baby, kill your darlings," something like that? Or uh, kill your darlings. Yeah, yeah. and and this is such like such a microscopic thing in, in creativity. But when I would write my little five hundred word blog, I would show my wife before I posted it. I'm like, I'm trying to say this. Here's the article, and she would look at it so like unemotionally, and she says, "You got these three sentences don't make any sense at all." And they're always my three favorite <laughs> sentences. Like not that. Oh no, I love that quote, or uh, that's that's my favorite sentence of the whole thing. It would always be my favorite one, and ninety nine percent of the time she was right. Like it was interesting to me, but didn't make sense or didn't add to the narrative of the writing. And uh, yeah, you got to kill your darlings, and it's almost like not what you can add, it's what you can take out. Right? That makes it look. Oh, sure. Perfection is, I forget who said it, like perfection is once there's nothing left to take out, there's the perfection. It's not, you got to add more, you got to stuff more in. It's like, take out, delete, delete, take out, edit, edit. The pure essence of it is there when you can't take anything else out, right? Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely agree. I'm convinced. I'm very proud of my book. I know it's pretty good, but that took a lot of work. And my first pass at anything is just embarrassing. The first draft of any chapter of any LinkedIn article is just a mess. And it's the time that we put into rewriting it, looking at it on the screen, printing it out, which makes it read a whole lot more differently. And then going back and rewriting and rewriting is, is what makes it all pay off. You had mentioned your articles and, and this book really started off as a collection of stories. And I think the first thing I wrote we also made a trip to Paris, and I took a train ride to Compiègne, which is where Germany and France signed their armistice agreements in both world wars under, in the same place under very different conditions. And I, I just felt compelled to write about that. And that was one story standing by itself. And now I think it's chapter 27 or something in my book. And I had you know, all these different stories, and you had mentioned Ryan Holiday. And I, I know we're both fans of his book, Perennial Seller. Absolutely. And I can I can remember I was in my car listening to the audio version, and I was 
on the way to a women's apparel company in New Jersey. And Ryan reads his own, I think he reads all of his own books. I know he read that one. And he asked, who is this thing for? And to that point, I was just writing these stories really for myself. And he also asked, like, what does this do? How will it improve the lives of the people who buy it? I almost pulled off the road. <laughs> it, it just changed completely how I thought about my writing and this collection of stories. And you know, that book is not just about, it's not a how-to book about writing. It's an inspirational book about writing, but it also stresses the importance of taking ownership of marketing your own work, which is you know, the heart of sales too. That perennial seller book of that evergreen material where if you presented it today or presented it a year from now, it's just as relevant because the material is like evergreen, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the underlying concepts I try to do with this podcast. It's, I don't always succeed, but I'm like, if I posted this three years from now or three years ago, would it be just as relevant? And I could say that about a podcast episode. I'm like, I did my job. If I talk to an author or an MMA fighter or whoever, like a business owner, and this could be five years from now or 10 years ago, it's just as relevant. Succeeded in what I was trying to do. And then let's go a little side story. The perennial seller, a guest on the show a couple months back, I had Ryan Holiday's research assistant, who you may know, Billy Oppenheimer. (laughs) And great interview, great guy. Still keep in touch with him over email. Such a good dude. I think he's a best-selling author in the making. Great newsletter, that six by six. Get it every Sunday. He tells a great story how he came about. You mind uh, filling in the gaps? I think you had something to do with it. Sure. Yeah, Billy and I are both named after the same guy. There's a Bill Whiteside who is my father. He passed away late last year. So I'm obviously my father's son. Billy is my father's grandson, the son of my sister. And uh, Billy was, after college, he was a great lacrosse player at Lehigh. He took off after college, spent a lot of time traveling. He was in Australia, New Zealand, playing and coaching lacrosse. He was skiing and teaching skiing in Colorado. And along the way, he started writing his own blog. And from Day one, I was impressed with how thoughtful, how well-written Billy's blogs were. And didn't see him that often, but every Thanksgiving, we would get together for dinner at his mom's house. And I casually mentioned to him that I had read and been really moved and helped by this book, Perennial Seller, by this guy, Ryan Holiday. And I suggested that he check it out. And then I just forgot about it. And then about nine, 10 months go by. And Billy calls me on a Sunday night and Billy had never called me in his life. So I knew something had to be up. And he said, Uncle Bill, I just had to tell you, I went out and bought Ryan's book the next day and just devoured it and loved it. And then waited a little bit and sent an email to Ryan Holiday and told him how impressed he was with his work and said, hey, if you ever need any assistance, if you ever need an odd job, somebody to write something or edit I'd be happy to do it for you for nothing to get started to help you. And the shock of his life was when Ryan wrote back and said, yeah, I do have a few things you can help me with. So he did a few one-off things for Ryan. And then Billy was in Colorado at the time and he got back from a run and he was looking on Strava, uh, the app that tracked his pace and his mileage. And he saw that Ryan was nearby and had made a run earlier that day and he was in town for a speech. 
So Billy got in touch with him and said, hey, it would be great to meet. And Ryan was really pressed for time. But Billy went to the place where they were meeting. Ryan was extremely gracious. And that led to a full-time job for Billy. And, uh, you know, and Ryan has been enormously supportive of Billy. He promotes his blog. He promotes his 6 at 6 newsletter that comes out every Sunday night. He promotes Billy's postings on LinkedIn and Twitter. I, I am jealous of the following that my nephew has um, on those social media sites, but so impressed with how he absolutely went after it. He saw an opportunity and he didn't find the reasons not to do it. He made all the right steps, went after it aggressively, and it's just such a great success story. I think that goes, is that Churchill? We'll tie this back into Churchill. What do you say? Fortune favors the bold? Was that him? I think that was him. Yes. Yeah. I know there are a lot of quotes that are attributed to him that he never said, but I'm pretty sure that's one of his. That's a remarkable story. Thank you for sharing that. And I just got done a podcast. Rick Rubin, one of the most creative, successful oh, yeah producers in the history of the planet. He was actually on Ryan's podcast and uh, Billy's name comes up. It's pretty cool. It's a great story and uh, kudos for for passing on a book that way. Cause you know, you said you put a book in the right hands of someone, like the right message at the right time. Like when the student's ready, the teacher appears, a right book in someone's hands at the right time just changes the direction of their life. So kudos to you for doing that. Well, it's neat when that happens. I'm so proud of the small part I played in that. And you and I will both be telling people in years to come, hey, we know Billy Oppenheim. We know that guy. <laughs> That's great. Let's transition over to uh, one of both of our heroes from history, Winston Churchill. What do you think are some modern day lessons that maybe a salesperson, a creative type, a business leader, even a world leader could learn by implementing the principles or thoughts of Winston Tur- Churchill? What do you think some of them are? The thing that stands out for me the most with him is that he was probably more than, certainly more than just about anybody I've ever known or even read about. He was just so very comfortable in his own skin. He took pride in his beliefs. There was a time before the war where the general movement was, let's appease Hitler. Let's not make him mad. If we poke the tiger, goodness knows what's going to happen. And he poked and he poked. And when he was brought into Neville Chamberlain's cabinet in September 1939. Hitler and Germany knew that England was now serious about fighting the war and not letting them get away with all the encroachments they had up to that point in time. So he was you know, very solid in his beliefs. At the same time, he was open to other viewpoints. He was obviously very opinionated, but you could change his mind if you challenged him, and he welcomed people who challenged him. And another thing that stood out for me was just the the diversity of opinions that he and personalities that he surrounded himself with. Surrounded to me, one of the most one of the other amazing stories from early in his term of uh, as prime minister was the the team of rivals that he put together in his cabinet, and he had to do. A lot of that for political reasons, because of the party structure in in England. But to me, the most striking example was he created the new position, um, Minister of Aircraft Production. And if Britain had not won the Battle of Britain in the summer and fall of 1940, they might not have survived the war. They may have been overtaken fairly early. And when he created this position, 
he asked to become the minister of aircraft production was Lord Beaverbrook, who was a newspaper baron. He had no background at all in production of any kind, no background at all in the government. But what he could do was he could get things done. And he was such a great organizer. Churchill felt way outside the box. And I, read, I think I read this in Andrew Roberts' book, that the first letter that Churchill got from the king after he became prime minister was a handwritten letter from the king asking him not to appoint Beaverbrook to that position. But the king finally went along with that, and Beaverbrook was a striking success in that role. Just to paraphrase a few things you said there, comfortable in his own skin, open-minded. I agree with you, said the more I read about the pilots in the Battle of Britain, from what I understand, they were being shot out of the sky and there wasn't a shortage of planes, but there was a shortage of pilots. They would fish the pilots out, give them dry clothes, and they would jump back in another plane and go fight again. One other thing is too, because the most of the air battles were fought over British territory, most of the planes that crashed, crashed on British turf. So Lord Beaverbrook also organized an organization to harvest the crashed planes. And they rebuilt Oh, some high percent. However, if, if they build 100 planes from scratch, I think they rebuilt about 30 planes from the pieces that they were able to put together. And he built an organization largely staffed by females, which is also what I heard of at the time, to collect the planes and work on gathering what could be salvaged. So he was definitely an innovator. One more thing just to add to the open-mindedness and what I think modern-day leaders and business leaders can learn from Churchill, the resilience that he had and his ability to transfer. We talked about sales, connecting this with sales, bringing the emotion that he felt, how he transferred emotion in his speeches from him to his speech to the people, where where the, the one where we'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight on the shores, we'll fight in the cities. Like that one, to this day, 80 years later, when I hear a clip of that on YouTube or someone plays it on a documentary, I get chills. Like just that resilience of like, you can't beat us. Like you're going to have to kill us, chop our body up in a hundred pieces and bury it through the countryside to get rid of us. Like we are not going away. I think that that is so intimidating to the person attacking you. When an attacking force knows that the other group is all in, it just changes a mindset. Like, wow, you know, you have a battle in your hand. That takes a little bit of that confidence away of that attacking force, knowing how resilient the people trying to survive are. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Hitler never went up against a leader like him who would fight back with such a vengeance. And back to the shelling of the French Navy, Churchill absolutely adored France, probably more so than anyone else in the British government. So it was so against his character to attack his former ally, but he would do anything for the life of Britain. So he was willing to do that. But then back to his speeches too. He was, as I've listened to them too. He was He's just so stunningly eloquent, and his delivery was immaculate. He delivered those speeches so well. And another striking thing was he wrote all of his own speeches. Um, Mm -hmm. And when he wrote them out, the format he used was almost like a a psalm. He had a unique way of uh, uh, putting the words on paper in front of him so he could deliver them the way he knew they needed to be delivered. That one speech he gave, like the, we'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight on the shores. That reminds me back, if you go back to the ancient times, like to the Spartans and Greeks, I I might be mixing this up a little bit, but Mm -hmm. there was that one where the Greeks surrounded the Spartans 
And they were like, if we take you, if we win, you'll die. So surrender now. And then the Spartans replied back with just if. Like they, they got the one word if, and they just sent it back because if we beat you, you'll die. So surrender. And the Spartans just said, just the response was if. I'm like, damn, that is, yeah. that is so baller. That resilience, I think resilience, open-mindedness, comforting your own skin, being able to inspire people. Like if you could get those three or four characteristics and do that in the business world or with your little local company or with your little sales team or whatever you're doing, I just think that just changes the game. What do you think? It does. And he was also great, great in terms of collaboration. Obviously, Britain could buy time, but they needed the U.S. in the war to eventually win the war. And he spent years courting President Roosevelt. I mean, it was people, some people have said it was almost like a love affair between the two of them. And uh, Churchill went out of his way to, we were talking about selling earlier, and tried to position Britain's needs in terms of America's benefit. Think what will happen to America if we're conquered and Germany takes our fleet and then is able to be a lot more active in the Atlantic Ocean where they're already sinking their merchant ships. And obviously, it was the attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan that literally brought us into the war. But Churchill spent almost two years leading up to that, wooing America and getting us more prepared to get into war. And also wooing from my understanding, FDR was not always super friendly and kind and just as cordial back. I think he gave him a hard time a little bit, right? I think that's fair to say. At times, and yeah, they had, this is maybe part of a longer conversation. They had an earlier meeting 20 years before and Churchill somewhat insulted Roosevelt. Roosevelt never completely got over that, but they grew to have an enormous amount of mutual respect and obviously an understanding of each other's best interests. But also there was, during the course of the war, the British, it became apparent that the British Empire would be no more after the war. The dominant position that Britain had in the world going into the war would become America's at the end of the war. And obviously that transpired. Generationally, everyone has their heroes of like their point in history. Uh, I remember 20 years ago, my grandparents were alive. They, my grandparents fought in World War II. My, my two grandfathers did. And they were, I know my, my one of them was just a huge FDR fan. Like FDR was the greatest president ever, like in his mind. And I just never was an FDR fan. Appreciate what he did. I was more of a Truman fan. And, uh, and we would go back and forth. But then a generation later, I have a whole bunch of Reagan fans. And then the modern day, maybe not aren't as big on Reagan, where if you grew up in the 80s, like Reagan was your man. Like Reagan was your thought. You think of president, you think of, oh, Reagan was a great president. Then you think 30 years later, like maybe the modern day doesn't think as highly as Reagan did. It's like every generation has their heroes of that generation, if that makes sense. It's uh, not. It does. Yeah. Wrapping up here with your book, what's the biggest lesson you took away from the conception? to the research, to the writing, to the publishing, to the selling, summarize all this in a life lesson. What did your first book teach you? The biggest thing is that writing a book and publishing a book is really a business. And the skills I had from organizing my work, from prioritizing my work, from being accountable for my own marketing, that certainly helped make it possible to finally get a book published in, on Amazon and in at least one neighborhood bookstore. I could not have done this 30 years ago. 
I wouldn't have had the discipline, wouldn't have had the experience, and I didn't know how to do a lot. I had to figure out most of it on myself. So um, treating it as a kind of like a, as a business venture was made all the difference in the world. Let's transition over to part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets so our listeners can get to know you a bit more as a person. Bill, most authors are big readers. And I think Ryan Holiday, who we mentioned a few moments back, says something like, I've got to read 50 books to write one book. If you look back, what book impacted your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? I do. Obviously, I've read a lot about Churchill and every major Churchill book. The most popular one recently was Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile, which is just an outstanding book. Read a lot of other books about other people in Churchill's sphere. But the, my single favorite book has absolutely nothing to do with Churchill, but I still put it a chapter in Everybody Knows a Salesman. I can't write a book about it. Is the book Sea Biscuit by Laura Hillenbrand. Sure. And to me, it's the best book I've ever read. I love the movie too, but that doesn't count. But it's, it's one of the things that astounded me. And I actually went back and counted these. During the course of the book, she talks about nine different races. The sea biscuit, this horse that came about during, came to prominence during Depression One. And even after reading the book three times, when I read about those races, I'm at the edge of my chair. She has such a knack for telling a story and for structuring the story and getting you to care about her characters. And I mentioned early on, I'm a sucker for learning about how people write and what their process is. And I read a story about Daniel James Brown. He wrote a book called The Boys in the Boat, which is about the U.S. Olympic rowing team that went over to Germany in 1936, yeah. and there were big underdogs, and they ended up, spoiler alert, they ended up winning the gold medal. But in his book, he said he was a huge fan of Laura Hillenbrand, and he actually took a copy of Seabiscuit before he started his book and diagrammed it. And he wanted to get a sense of how she introduced these stories, what she told about her characters. And I did that too. I learned about the outlining feature in Microsoft Word. So I outlined Seabiscuit. And it was such an enlightening exercise to see how an author that good actually took such a, such a disciplined approach to pulling together all of the facts for her story and then filling them out and making you care about the structure. And that specific outline doesn't work for this the story that I'm writing, but that exercise and the process of having an outline and seeing what could be done, that helped me enormously. How about Bill? If you look out to the year ahead, what's uh, the most exciting project you're working on now? It's definitely my Churchill book. I've been getting away with telling people for about the last two years that my book will be finished in a year. I think that is finally a realistic projection. And I still have a lot of fine tuning to do, but the book is quote unquote complete in that I have 68 chapters written. The story is told from beginning to end, but it's like a huge piece of drywall with holes in it and spackling sticking out where I have to do quite a bit of finishing until it's something that I'm proud of. 
The other thing too would be the current book. Everybody knows a salesman can't write a book. I self-published that. And that book is a mutt of a book. It's about 60% about Churchill and his contemporaries and about 40% on research and writing. So it was not natural for an agent or a publisher to pick that up. Hopeful that the book about Churchill and the incident will be a lot more attractive to an agent and a publisher, which is a good thing, but that also it also takes longer to get to the market when you do it that way. So, But I'm willing to do that. I think another benefit of having this first book out now is that I'm an unknown to everybody, but I've proven that I can write. I've proven that I can get on your podcast in terms of marketing and that I'm able to bring a book to market. So hopefully that will help too. What's the saying? There's no better way to promote your first book than writing the next one, right? Yes, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. A couple fun questions here to wrap things up. How about if everyone listening could take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? To borrow the very well-known term from Nike, just do it. Now, I've heard from so many people who that always thought about writing a book, but I've been hesitant to take that step. I have some friends and relatives who are just phenomenal musicians, but and they're interested in trying to get their music out to a broader market, but there's some hesitancy to do that. Try it, go after it, start writing, start recording. There's just, I'm sure you get this on LinkedIn and other places. When you start to get positive feedback to your personal work and your creative work, there are a few feelings better than that in the world. It takes some work. It takes some discipline to get to the point where you're willing to share that, but man, it is, it is worth it. Uh, that's cool. How about, here's a fun question to wrap up. If you could spend the day with anyone, historical figure, alive or dead, who would you like to spend the day with? I, I know who you think I'm going to say, but, um, <laughs> and who wouldn't want to spend a day with Winston Churchill, but it's, it's, it's too obvious. Um, yep. I, I thought about this recently. It, it would be my mother's father, so my maternal grandfather, Michael Ferrick, who came over from Ireland early in the 20th century. He was an immigrant. He married a fellow immigrant. He uh, served in the U.S. Army in World War I as a cook. And somehow he earned a silver star, which is the third highest decoration. And the, what we've seen, what we've been told is that he crawled through enemy lines under fire to deliver food to the front. But there has to be more to the story than that. And then after the war, family urban legend, and I've seen some proof of this, is that he was a, a bootlegger, or he was active in the bootlegging supply chain. He helped facilitate the movement of liquor during Prohibition. So his story fascinates me, and he died when I was about six years old. I can picture him, but I can't say I really knew him. I would love to learn more about his story. That's it's so cool. We all got stories like that, where we just we knew someone a generation or two above us. And uh, yeah, it would be fascinating to see that. Now, great. Thank you for sharing that. For sure. Last question. Bill Whiteside, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? 
that's a big if. I, I don't perceive that I will ever perceive that I will ever do this. The only thing that comes to mind are the two words perfectly adequate. I am still charmed by that. And self-publishing my book, I had to start a one-person publishing company. The name of that company is Perfectly Adequate Press. I use Perfectly Adequate on Twitter. That would be my tattoo. Perfectly. Yeah, perfectly adequate. adequate. You gave everything you could to the writing, to your sales career, to being a parent, to whatever it is. You're adequate, man. Like the imposter syndrome is a joke. Um, you're adequate enough. You're perfectly adequate to do anything you put your mind and soul to do it. You give it everything you got, right? Is that what you're trying to say? I I agree. Absolutely. Yes. Don't have to be perfect. Yep. No, I appreciate that. I'd be good in a lot of areas. I think perfectly adequate is a perfect spot to wrap this up. Bill Whiteside, I'd like to thank you for joining us. First off, if our listeners are looking for you and your book online, where can we find you? The best place, I, I have a website called perfectlytreestory.com. So Perfectly True Story tells the story of my book. I have a monthly newsletter. You can look at it. You can subscribe there. or You can get updates on the book uh, or look at for my book. Everybody knows it sells, but can't write a book on Amazon or independent bookstores. You can find it there. But I want to thank you too, Joe. This has been an absolute thrill. I appreciate you and an honor. I appreciate you having me on. I've really enjoyed this. Bill, thank you for joining us. I wish you much success for this book. And then when that Churchill book comes out, hopefully we can have you back on to talk some more Churchill and go deep into one of the true heroes and characters of history. I would love it. Let's do that. You got it, Bill. Best of luck with everything, man. Go get it. Thanks so much, Joe. You too. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.